Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Out of the Blue on 3CR, 855 AM. And today with us in the studio, Matt. Hi, Matt. Good morning, Fum. Fum and myself and Cade Mills from the Victoria National Park Association. Hi, Cade. Good morning. Um, So more when we get back after this card. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here, I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying, Happy birthday, 3CR! Hi everyone and welcome to Out of the Blue on your Sunday morning. Um, We're here in the studio today with Cade Mills from the Victoria National Park Association and we're going to have a chat about the upcoming Victorian fish count. The Great Victorian Fish Count, don't you mean? The Great Victorian Fish Count, sorry. The fantastic, the fabulous. <laughs> the fantabulously great Victorian Fish Count. Um, so welcome, Kate. Uh, I understand that uh, it's it's uh, slightly new for you as well to lead this, uh, this project, but you have been doing a lot of uh, data crunching on it from the past 10 to 13 years, I believe. 
Yeah, correct. We've had a look at some of the data that divers have been collecting year in, year out, and just started to have a, I guess, a preliminary look at what that tells us about the fish, the 25 species that we do look at every year for the Great Victorian Fish Count. Um, and, you know, I guess it's pretty much good news so far. We haven't noticed any major declines in anything trend-wise. Um, it's not definitive, the data, and we've still got a long way to go, but we're getting there. Oh, so that's there's great. Um, there's a few more than 25 species in the bay. Um, why did you pick those 25 in particular? Are they significant? Well, we're not just focused in the bay. It's the whole of Victoria, so the whole of Victorian coastline. Uh, the 25 species were picked by Dr Mark Norman, had a fair bit to do with it, and they were all based on some that lived for a long time, such as the Blue Devil, around for about 40 years, so people can go back to the same site year in, year out, and hang pretty on, much see on, the same on. fish. This fish lives for 40 years? It can do, yeah. It's really? been aged to live for about that long, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So if you find one in your local dive site, they're quite territorial and they'll pretty much stay there. I used to visit one at Point Lonsdale every day on my way to work and over over summer that is. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be there day in, day out for a few years. Oh, lovely. So yeah. you just go by and say, hi, Basil, how are you going this morning? Pretty much, and they can ID them <laughs> from the spots on their face, similar to what they do with the whale sharks and the photo recognition. They have unique spots on their face and you can use that to identify them but yeah that's one of the fish and that's sort of one of the reasons to follow it the others were at the time fish that hadn't been seen all that frequently and were known to exist in around port phillip bay or sorry in victoria one was the harlequin fish which still hasn't been seen in victoria for quite some years as a museum record from the it's the late 1800s i could be incorrect on that um of it from hobson's bay so right up near the mouth of the Yarra, and it hasn't been seen, or we don't have any specimens or sightings for a long, well, since then. It's common in South Australia, it's found in quite a few spots, but just hasn't made the trip back to Victoria yet. And the other one has been the, the Eastern and the Western Blue Groper, which there's records again at the Museum of Occurring in Victoria, and the Eastern Blue Groper started to turn up on the eastern side of the state with a particularly the Beware Beware Reef Friends Group have done a bit of work and they sort of spotted them early. But, I mean, I guess more recently or in the past sort of five to ten years, the Western Blue Groper has been found on sort of the western side of the state and turned up in Port Phillip Bay as well and it's now been protected for five years. Great. Uh, so there are different species then, Western and Eastern, like properly different species? They are, yes, yeah. yes. And so basically Victoria's where East meets West. <laughs> as far as we know, there's no overlap at the yeah. moment, yeah. but that's all we know. But the idea is to get a lot of eyes out there looking for us and, yeah, who knows what they'll turn up. So what happens during the count um, when you do get those eyes out there? Do you have divers, snorkelers? Have a combination, so it sort of caters to every level of experience. So people that haven't spent much time in the water or people that are just want to snorkel, generally Parks Victoria sites, so things such as Ricketts Point, uh, Jawbone Marine Sanctuary, Point Cook and Barwon Bluff down on the Ballerine sort of peninsula, they're all snorkelling activities run by Parks Victoria, so they're quite a um, heavily involved partnership with us and they'll cater to those that want to go out and sort of check it out without diving experience and then a lot of dive clubs so we have dive stores from across the state that will run special great victorian fish count dive day, dive events dive days some do multiple some only do one often there's a barbecue afterwards um and it's it's 
been a social occasion for many people, and there's free T-shirts, so that seems to get people back as well. They've become a bit of a collector's item. Free stuff, like, yeah. Yeah, it works every year. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. when is it? Uh, when is it this year, actually? So this year it starts on the 19th of November. And it runs for a month. So we're running it to okay. the 11th of December. In the past, it's varied from three to four weeks. And we just had a few people say, look, can you make it go a little bit longer? And that's fine. The longer it goes into December, the nicer the weather gets as well. So we've got quite a few groups that are doing it on the first weekend. And we've got quite a few that are doing it towards the end. Um, yeah. Yeah, all the details are online at the VMPA. You can check it out. Yeah, yeah. We'll put that on our Facebook page group, as yeah. well. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And what if you don't want to get wet? Can you still sort of show up and support the activity? I'll bring some donuts and some coffee and you'll yeah. be the most popular person there, yeah. <laughs> but especially with the Parks Victoria events, they have rangers there that know the areas quite well and you know, their heads are full of a thousand stories and they can tell you a lot about what, what these people are experiencing, what they're seeing out there. And you, know, you can always have a walk along the intertidal rock platforms and check them out instead. Yeah. So how does it work? You know, when I'm a, a snorkeler and I want to participate in this, uh, do I just take a, a photo camera or do I need to write stuff down? Or how, how does it work? Does everybody go in the water at the same time? So d depending on the group and depending on who you're running with, generally the idea is to not disturb your normal snorkel or your normal dive. It's to encourage you to make observations while you're doing what you would normally do. Um, if you don't snorkel all that often, then perhaps you're not quite sure what you normally do. But you have a slate, which I have here, which is really good for radio, um, and it has <laughs> colour images. I can, I can tell the listeners it's got lots of colourful fish it, images on it. Yeah. We're it, actually on AM, though, so we can't see colour, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> it's in black and white. But we have a slate that goes to each buddy pair, so we'll get divers, whether they're diving or snorkeling, to pair up. Um, we give them a slate. It has images of the 25 species of fish. Before they get in the water, they're told the differences between various fish, the fish that they're expecting to see, what to look for when they're down there, where they're going to find them. Um, the blue devil I was talking about earlier is always sort of found in a cave, um, so divers tend to find it more frequently. And then it comes with a pencil attached along. They can mark the ones that they're seeing. And we do sort of a count of relative abundance. So, you know, there's one to five six to 20 and then over 20. Yeah. So it just, it gives you an indication of how many are there without people having to stress about going one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, 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 36, <laughs> and yeah. not quite sure what's going on. So yeah. yeah it, how certain do the divers and snorkelers feel about the ID? Just looking at some of the pictures there, like the, um, the more longs and some of the zebra fish from a distance. Yeah, to the untrained eye, might look a bit similar. Sorry? To the untrained eye, some of them may look a bit similar. Some of them may, in particular the sea sweep and the silver sweep, even to me, they look quite similar. But there's always a dive guide and someone that's leading, and they will point out the species that you're going to have trouble with and give you little tips and tricks and ways to work out the difference. And the way the data is compiled is if you have 16 people in the water, they'll all mark their slates, and then they all come back together, and you look at all eight of those slates because 16 pairs and then that data is compiled onto one sheet so it means that it gives you a chance to go okay five people saw this and only one saw that and you can question them at the time so are you sure that was that and they go oh i'm not sure and you can take those sightings away and it's a good way to just confirm that you are actually seeing what's being recorded and how do you how do you make sure that the same fish doesn't get counted 16 times or eight times per, per we just pair? use an average across it. So if everyone's seen five or six to 20 of the same fish, we just 
we don't add them all up. We just assume that six to twenty. If some yeah. people see one, and some people see over twenty, again, it's just it's a ballpark figure. Generally, with the data, the abundances aren't used necessarily as much as just the occurrence and the fact that it was seen there. Yeah, that's great. So you said that some um, people might treat it as a normal dive, but do you also have the transect concept where you just swim in a straight line and? Not for this. This just use a roving diver. Um, the idea being that you know, dive sites that are varying shape and size, and some people aren't interested in swimming straight lines. Yep. Or again, the dive sites often aren't straight lines. Mm. Unfortunately, nature doesn't work to a grid yep. system like the cities do. But yeah. yeah, no, it's designed to allow people to do that. Um, there are other groups that use transects and you more use more rigorous methods, mm -hmm. but again, they're limited to the amount of people that they can get involved. So what has the, uh, the the data shown us so far? Because you did you did that crunching and you said most of them were mostly stable. Yeah, so there's a lot of, oh, I don't know whether the word, issues, challenges is probably a better word to use <laughs> when it comes to dealing with data that's come from a variety of sources and a variety of people with different levels of experience and different knowledge. So I had a quite simple look at it, basically just looking at if it occurred or if it didn't. And then looking at the number of dives that were done within that year and the number of times that fish occurred was seen within that. So it takes some of the biases out of the data and it gives you a chance just to look at general trends across, I'm pretty sure it was 13 years worth of data that we had there. And what that showed is that things such as the, was the blue throat wrasse was seen generally 50 to 70% of the time people went for a dive. And what it tells you is you jump in the water somewhere in Victoria, 50 to 70% of the time you're going to see a blue rat. Now, this actually decreased quite massive, quite quite largely in about 2004 or five. It dropped down to about 30-odd percent. So it went from a reasonably stable level, dropped down to around 30%. And then two or three years later, inclined straight back up to where it had been sitting previously. So this could just be a natural cycle. There could have been weather events. We need to look at the data further and sort of correlate it with other, I guess, environmental effects that are happening and also look at whether people are recording their data. But most of them, yeah, they were reasonably stable. They, they may not have been seen often, but they were seen around the same amount of times every year. And yeah. then those that were seen quite a lot even, they were seen, you know, 50 to 40% of the time every year for about 12, 13 years. I was quite surprised. And how does this, uh, how is this data being used? Because is, is this the first time that there's been sort of, you know, somebody looking at it and looking at the trends? Yeah, the data's gone from being written on cards when it was first collected to then I think it ended up on individual sheets of paper and eventually it got onto a database. And now we're looking at getting all the data onto the Atlas of Living Australia. Living Australia. And what that will allow people to do is to look at where where things are occurring, say whether it's in their local park or their local area that they're looking at. They can look at trends over time. They can look at seasonal. Well, they can look at seasonal changes if data has been collected during multiple multiple seasons. But they can definitely look at things. They can start adding rainfall events. They can do all sorts of things to actually sort of start getting a picture of what's going on with their data. And yeah, it hasn't been done before. Unfortunately, the data has gone through many mutations and. It's been a struggle to 
get it into a format where it can be used. And I think the battle has been won, not by me. There has been a few people at the museum and Wendy Roberts, the previous ReefWatch coordinator, has worked sort of tirelessly to get it to this stage. And now we're at a stage where we can start putting it out there for researchers, managers, and just people that are generally interested to have a look at it. How long has the data been collected? How many years now? 2002 was when not necessarily the fish count data started, but ReefWatch data. And the idea behind ReefWatch was to get people, a lot of people when they go for a dive will record all the things they see. So to get that data from their logbook into a database so that you have multiple observations there and you start to get a better picture of what's happening. And not to mention that, you know, every man and his dog is carrying a camera these days. That's definitely and that makes that makes things a lot easier as well. It has definitely changed, and like I'm encouraging as many people as as have cameras to get out there and sort of take photos of the fish, particularly if they're unsure. Um, there's been quite a few fish species identified by whether it's ReefWatch divers or Great Victorian Fish Count divers who they've gone, oh, that's unusual. I haven't noticed that before. And photos, and they've been sent to the museum, and we've had a couple. I think it was the spiny. Spiny-coated anglerfish just last year was found at Blegari Pier and it hadn't been recorded down this far. The short-snout boarfish, I've got to make sure I've got... Yeah, the short-snouted boarfish was also seen a few years ago and hadn't been spotted in the bay for some time. And a lot of these things, and it's, they're all being able to be verified because people have cameras now. Yeah. And people are taking photos of that and sending it through. And I guess that's part of what ReefWatch and the fish count does is it allows... It's a contact for people. If they've got something and they don't know what it is, instead of trying to get in touch with the museum, which can be quite hard if they can send it through us, we can then get in touch with the museum because we also have a partnership with them as well. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. So, Kate, with um, uh, the Atlas of Living Australia, uh, is that being used for any specific purpose, you know, more than just people interested in, in finding a blue devil somewhere? Uh, no, it's used by anyone and everyone. A lot of PhD students will use it to, particularly in terrestrial environments, probably not so much in marine yet, where um, I think we're lacking in data marine-wise. That's part of the reason to try and get all this data from 13 years accounts on there so people can start to look at distributions and see if things stand out or things look different. Um, as I said, students will use it terrestrial to choose study sites, to know where things occur. They even analyse some of the data and the sightings that are on there as part of theses. It um, can be used by managers, people planning. And again, I've got to use terrestrial advantages because I'm not aware of it really being used much in marine and that's probably due to the fact that we do have a lot of holes in the information. Yeah, I did a yeah. search for Western Blue Groper knowing that it's been spotted and it's now protected in Victoria in the Atlas and not a single record comes up. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, yeah so there's yeah. still some holes sort of in there and they're probably aware of that, but it makes it a bit difficult for marine users. But for things like parks, if they're planning on expanding the boundary of parks or things like that, they can actually look at what species are occurring in other areas. Yeah, and that's a really, really important, um, I guess, contribution that people can make, you know, in their, in their spare time with this sort of citizen science, uh, that they know that when they do this fish count, that actually their efforts are, you know, might be used to expand marine parks or positive things like that. Exactly, and it provides people that are trying to plan these things with an idea of what's there. Without this information, you know, they might go for one dive or two dives or they hire a consultant or someone to go and mm. check it out, but they will get in the water for a maximum of three or four hours, five hours, ten hours, whatever it is. It doesn't compare to yeah. the amount of time that 
everyday people spend well, out there looking at it. I'll tell you uh, a little secret about consultants. <laughs> I used to be one, so and I used I. those database too. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> this was in Europe, mind you, when I was in in urban urban planning. So I was an ecologist. Um, but the, the system is quite, you know, like here, uh, you know, Bowerbird and all those those yeah, yeah. you know uh, online free databases are quite developed in uh, in the Netherlands, and I used to draw on that all the time for. You know, just just species maps of 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 distri- distributions of species and things like that. If I had to do just some research into, you know, oh, what occurs in this sort of plot of land, just so I was informed before I would actually go out there and do my flora and fauna assessments. Uh-oh. It was very very handy. And we should. I've worked as a consultant myself, and we would do site inspections. So we'd get an hour or so in the water, and we'd write up species lists from that. Whereas if you had a list. Yeah. that had been generated over multiple years, it would only add strength to what it is that's being found out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because there's only so much you can find in one hour of your time. That right? is correct, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, any, uh, do you think uh, this sort of information um, will will keep going, like this sort of projects? Is it is it becoming more popular or is there, how many people are, are involved in this? I'm always curious to know. Yeah, it has varied. I think last year was over about 350 and oh, we're wow. looking for it to be similar again this year. Um, it has sort of grown and shrunk, grown and shrunk over time, uh, but that's generally been the amount of people that we get in there, which is fantastic. You get that many eyes in the water looking and you're going to, you're going to get a lot of good images, but you're also going to get a lot of good information out of having that many people there. The plan is for it to continue to grow. Um, I've only just started the role. I've been in it for all of about four months. So um, I have a confession to make that I haven't done a fish count and I won't have done one <laughs> until the 19th of November when I'll get to do my first. I've counted plenty of fish in my time, but yeah, just not using this slate. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. So you can uh, tag along with the uh, the seasoned divers and snorkelers and fish count leaders of Victoria and uh, they can show you how to do your job, basically. There has to be some perks <laughs> to the job, doesn't there? I've got yeah. a month of going diving, looking at fish, so I can't complain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then you're back behind the computer again. <laughs> well, once I get all the data, data that'll yeah. be my job to work through it all yeah, and paint yeah. a picture for everyone. Yeah, well, uh, um, it looks like it's uh, it's going to be a good one again this year. I do remember that last year there was a lot of. Um, I, I just happened to see a lot of promotion for the for the project um, through different channels, you know, like through the eco center and through my mailing lists and and things and Facebook and all that sort of stuff. So uh, yeah, let's hope that uh, you're saying I should get busy. <laughs> hey, your words, not mine. <laughs> no, I'm I know, well aware. <laughs> I know how busy you are. But what I was going to say is that that was, you know, hopefully you can, you'll be able to sort of still ride that wave and, and, and get people in for that because uh, the promotion of the project was great. Um, you know, it's really <laughs> much easier to get people into the water when they see lots of beautiful images of fish. Um, so I can't wait to see what, uh, what comes out of this project this year. And see how many people uh, actually go in there. Oh, I'm with you. I'm looking forward to it <laughs> quite nervously, having never planned one before. But it, it's looking good, yes. And the, yeah, the promotions great. are well on their way. And so I just need pretty pictures of fish. <laughs> lots. Lots. All oh, right, I can yes. do that. Are you listening over there, divers and snorkelers who are listening in? Yep. So uh, approach your nearest dive school. If you're not in a dive club yet, have a look around. Google dive schools and dive clubs that are going into the water um, in November, December. 
your local snorkeling groups as well. And uh, keep an eye on the website of the VMPA because all the information about the great Australian fish count, sorry, great Victorian fish count will be there. <laughs> we'll get it right. Yeah, one day it'll we'll be We'll get Australian. it right one day. We'll get yes. it right on the Facebook link at least. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for joining us today, Kate. Not a problem. Thank you. Support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care and also others The recognition were. of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Recently, a ban was imposed on a stretch of Warrnambool's coast due to local traditional owners' concern about the damage to Indigenous sites of significance by racehorses being trained through the dunes and the upper beach. This has now concentrated all the trainers into a smaller stretch of coast near Kalani and Port Ferry in Victoria's southwest. This also happens to be the most significant stretch of coast for a threatened coastal bird which you may have heard of on this show previously, the hooded plover. It's also an internationally significant stretch of coast for migratory birds such as sandaling, ruddy turnstones and double-banded plovers. And it's also an important uh, breeding site of pied oyster catchers and red cap plovers, which also lay their eggs on the beach like the hooded plovers. Training horses on upper beach in dunes puts them directly in the most sensitive zone of the beach where the camouflaged, camouflaged eggs and chicks are at risk of direct crushing, disturbance off the nest for resident shorebirds and of feeding migratory birds that have travelled halfway around the globe to get enough food and energy to be able to make the journey home and breed. There's also a risk of trampling chicks and churning the sand so it's difficult for these tiny chicks to move to their feeding areas and escape predators. One proposed solution is to create a purpose-built facility off the beaches. Racehorses and fragile coastal ecosystems don't go together. You can petition on change.org to remove racehorse training from this sensitive coastline area uh, and also support the Belfast Coastal Reserve Action Group. And FOM will uh, put a link to that change.org petition on our Facebook page. Sure thing. And we'll also have the link to the VNPA site where you can register your interest in the great Victorian fish count. Did I get yeah, it right Yeah, rub that it time? in, rub it yep. in. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, that's all we have time for today on Out of the Blue. Stick around for Out of the Pan coming up next. Oh, 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 